0: and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. So we're looking at the life of David um, and we're now entering the book of 2 Samuel. And um, David, has been exiled from Israel, his home country. David is the second king of Israel. Saul, of course, is the first king of Israel. And uh, the reason that David was exiled is because Saul hates David with a passion, the jealous, murderous passion. And Saul has been hunting David down to kill him for several chapters now. And so David is living among uh, his arch enemy, the Philistines, who hate Israel which is an awful thing for David to have to do, to pretend to be on the side of the Philistines um, just so that he won't be killed by them. And he's, get, he's put in this terrible bind where um, the Philistines ask uh, him to go march with them against Israel. And so now, not only is David living among the Philistines, but he has to go with them to fight against his own beloved people, the Israelites. And um, luckily... The generals of the Philistines do not trust him. The king wanted him to go fight. The generals don't trust him, so he ends up not going. And he stays behind in Ziklag. But he's still very interested in whether or not uh, Israel won the battle with the Philistines. So he's waiting and waiting, dying to know what happened. And then this random messenger comes up. And David didn't ask for the messenger. He was probably praying for news. But this messenger comes up. And verse 2 says... Uh, his clothes were torn and dirt was on his head. He's coming uh, from the camp of Saul. And he's, he thinks he's coming to, to tell David great news. He thinks that he's coming uh, to tell David, look, Saul, your great enemy is dead. And, uh, and everything is clear for you now to be the king of Israel. And you're free. You know, Your, your great uh, persecutor is dead. And he, he imagines that David is going to reward him for that. And in this terrible uh, turn, David instead kills him for that. And, uh, And then not only does he do that, then he laments the death of Saul. So both things are surprising and maybe the opposite of what you would have thought. And I want to look at those two things, both of those things that he did. First of all, the fact that he killed this Amalekite messenger. And in that, I want to look at his commitment to justice, which is... Probably not the way that we feel about that. The way he felt about that incident was probably not the way you feel. So I'm gonna guess that this is gonna push back a little bit on you. But I wanna look at that, his commitment to justice and the, way, the reason that he executed that Amalekite messenger. And then number two, his commitment to grace. And I say that because he is, he is singing a song of lament over his arch enemy. So commitment to justice, commitment to grace. David's a little more confusing. Uh, He's a very confusing character. He's a little more confusing than you would think he would be. So justice and grace. So this messenger comes up to David, and David asks him, where do you come from? And he says, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And at that point, you can imagine David is engaged. You know, his eyes are now wide. Uh, He's leaning forward. He's grabbing the guy's shoulders. And he says, how did it go? Tell me. He's, He's... Breathless. You know, he's on, he's on the edge. And his heart is beating wildly. And the guy says, uh, The people fled, and also many of them have fallen and died. And now you can imagine that as David is waiting, uh, his stomach is just filled, like, it was just nauseous. He's, he, he imagines the worst. And uh, what he's about to hear, he can already predict. Verse 4, And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. And if you know David, you can imagine the way this weighed on him and just the shock. Um, You can see that when he tears his clothes and wails and mourns for who knows how many hours he and all of his troops, uh, they're devastated. Uh, Jonathan was his best friend and Saul was not only a father figure to him, but also was the king, the anointed. And uh, I, remember, I remember when I, I heard that my wife had cancer. Um, this was a year and a half ago. And I was walking down the street in Atlanta. And I just remember I actually could not take another step. It, my body just kind of shut down. And I imagine that David uh, felt the same way. And when this guy starts talking in verse 6 and reporting what happened, uh, you can just imagine that David is kind of like his eyes are glazed over. And he's only half listening his thoughts are a million miles away but this guy is excitedly reporting you know he, he he is not reading his audience well uh in verse six by chance I happened to be on Mount Geboa and there was Saul leaning on his spear and behold the chariots and the horsemen were upon him close and when he looked behind him he saw me and called to me now you've got to know he's making all this up this this is not what happened and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me. And yet my life still lingers. And then the final blow that um, would have made David just kind of probably seethe with uh, an angry justice. I stood beside him and killed him. First 10. I stood beside him and... Killed him. Now that might sound like mercy killing to you. Uh, you know, something like uh, physician's assistant suicide. Um, it sounds merciful, but it's actually all based on a lie. Because in verse, uh, verse 4 of 1 Samuel 31, so go back a chapter if you have a Bible. 1 Samuel 31, verse 4, we read this. The narrator says that Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it. But the armor bearer wouldn't do it, for he feared killing the king, which is what the Amalekites should have done, fear killing the king. And so Saul took out his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that, he fell upon his sword and died. So Saul killed himself. So so the messenger's lying. Why is the messenger lying? Uh, To get in David's good graces. To get in David's favor. To either get a job or a lot of money. Uh, He thinks that David is going to be thrilled... By this news, and you can imagine the way his face must have fallen. In verse eleven, David took a hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And as that is happening, you can imagine the messenger beginning to think to himself, "This is not what I had planned on. This is not how I saw this going." And sure enough, David's reaction after this morning is very swift and very shocking. Verse 15, David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. It's not murder. In the Hebrew, it's execute. They're different words for these things. Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And that's really the nub of it right there. That's a very hard verse. Um, It's one of those verses that uh, seems very unjust. I remember when I first started reading the Old Testament, which was sadly about seven years into my life as a Christian, I kind of avoided the Old Testament because I thought it was scary and it had verses like this in it. And indeed it does. And um, I remember first coming upon this story and just thinking, this is why I didn't want to read the Old Testament. And this is why the Bible is so hard for me. Because it makes me just question the morality of the Bible when I read a story like this and say, could a a loving God have really inspired that story? Could a loving God have inspired King David to do this? Is this really a a man after God's own heart? And maybe uh, I imagine some of you might question that too. Some of you might be fine with it. Um, But a few things to remember is that first of all, the Hebrew Bible, uh, which we call the Old Testament, is always on the side of the weak Always on the side of the immigrant, the sojourner. Uh, And so it is also very passionate about justice. And Jesus loved his Bible. The Hebrew Bible was his Bible, and he loved it. And he, he knew it all well, and he loved King David especially. And so you've got to think about Jesus reading this. You've got to think about thousands of years of people who are very wise, wiser than us, reading this and, and 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 saying this is right this is good and i just want to say that to situate yourself that, that we are all coming from a, a specific you know cultural position in in both time and space we are in this specific culture um, that wrestles with things like this perhaps somewhat uniquely this is not not everybody in the world would have a problem with this story right here so i just want you to kind of Realize, uh, question your, yourself a little bit there. And and yet, I'm, I'm deeply sympathetic, obviously, to anyone who struggles with these stories. But, you know, we are not wiser than the Bible. I think of it like a five-year-old child coming and saying, you know, I've read the Constitution. And um, some of it just doesn't sit well with me. It's, it's madness to think that we um, know more than the Scriptures. And we think, you know, this poor messenger, he's only trying to help out. He's trying to, you know, relieve Saul of his distress. He's trying to help David. He thinks David's going to be excited. He's so excited. Uh, But we know that he's actually a thief and a liar. And he probably uh, crept around battlefields like a vulture searching for loot regularly. I mean, he's got the crown. He stole the crown somehow. I don't know how he found it, but in verse 10 it says, I took the crown and the armlet... And here they are. And so uh, this guy is not a, a moral paragon. And, and also David was not rash in his decision. Uh, this was not coming out of revenge or um, uh, some kind of sudden burst of anger. In verse 12 it says, they mourned and wept and fasted until evening. So he waited He grieved, and I imagine that as he carried out this justice, there were tears in his eyes. He's clearly lamenting after this. He's weeping for Saul, and he says, how is it, in verse 14, how is it that you were not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And you know, David didn't even know about the lying, did he? He didn't know that the guy stole this stuff. He didn't know this guy was like a vulture, um... David just knew this guy killed the king and you just do not, first of all, you don't murder anyone, but especially the Lord's anointed. And so he says in verse 16, and this lets you know that it's a judicial action, your blood be upon your head. In other words, the blood you have shed is the cause of your own death. And it was a law in Israel that a murderer must be put to death. And you might not like that law, but that was the law of Israel. And that's what David was going by. And so I would say that the, the problem is not with the Bible, but the problem is with us. And this just exposes uh, an underdeveloped sense of justice, I think, in all of us. I know it does with me, and I can't speak for you, but I imagine that, um, like me, you analyze the Bible and you question it and you weigh it. Um, and you think, you know, I don't, I don't know about this kind of thing. And, and the reality is that the God is not in the dock you're in the dog. And the Bible is the one that questions you and analyzes you and weighs you into balance and not the other way around. And there was a, a great book by George MacDonald who was an inspiration to uh, C.S. Lewis. He wrote a lot of fairy tales and he wrote a book called uh, The Light Princess. And The Light Princess is about a young princess who can't stay on the ground literally. She's always floating up into the air. She keeps kind of levitating because... She has no gravity about her. She's, she has too much levity about her. And all she ever does is kind of giggle and laugh. Nothing is serious to her. And so they're always having to find ways to kind of weigh her down to the earth. Because she's always just making fun of everything. And um, I think sometimes our sense of justice is like that. We're a little bit frivolous. A little bit flippant. Kind of like we're from the moon. You know, very low, low level gravity there. Uh, very low amount of weight. There's not a lot of weightiness to us sometimes. Not, not necessarily everyone, but I know that uh, I have not experienced a kind of tragedy that would probably, especially injustice, that would make one weighty and grave from the word gravity. You know, as parents, uh, I know I said a lot of times there are going to be consequences for this action. And I didn't carry out the consequences at all. And we go to a high school where, uh, at R.J. Reynolds High School, Students have been known to curse teachers to their face. Student cursing a teacher and nothing is done. And it's kind of expected that probably nothing will happen in that situation. And we live in a city where there was a homeless man who lived in Haynes Park and a pack of boys from R.J. Reynolds High School. You probably wonder why am I sending my children to R.J. Reynolds High School. It's a, it's a good school in many ways, but a pack of boys from the high school murdered the guy underneath the bridge in Haynes Park And basically, got away with it almost scot free. And my point is that um, one of the reasons we need to read the Bible is to be weighted down with a sense of its justice and the weight of holiness. And you read about the flood, you know, Noah's Ark. It's a very difficult story. It should not be a children's story. It's probably the most bloody, it is the most bloody story in the Bible. You read about the conquest of Canaan, you read about the final judgment. And you question these things, but it's kind of like a person from the moon coming to earth and beginning to feel the weight of the gravity of our planet, which is greater, by the way, than the moon's. And so uh, it's like you're beginning to strengthen your muscles and strengthen your legs and your arms. And so my point is that David's reaction is just. And that I believe he's not being vindictive. It's not payback. He is a man of grace. And you see that in this next section because, um, as one commentary said, this is the moral high point of his life. This is the apex. This is the point where he reaches his greatest moment of dignity and mercy and forgiveness because he actually writes a song of lament to the man who was trying to kill him. So don't imagine that he's a petty tyrant or a dictator, um, like off with his head, that kind of person. He's not like that at all. He's a man of grace. He's a very complicated man. So now this is point two, which is he's not only committed to justice, but he's committed to grace. Now you'd think that he'd be happy about Saul's death, right? Again, uh, his greatest enemy is dead. Imagine someone is trying to murder you and you're, you're running around the city trying to hide. You hear the guy is dead. What are you going to do? You're going to celebrate He doesn't have to run for his life. He can return home again. He is going to be the king now. But not only is he not happy, uh, he is furiously scribbling out this song of lament. I don't know how long it took him, but perhaps not long. It's almost like he's been storing this up. And he just writes down this song, and it's not a private song of mourning. It's not like uh, tears... uh, in Heaven from Eric Clapton where he laments his son. It's not that kind of song. It's more like Bridge Over Troubled Water where uh, Simon and Gar- Garfunkel like publicly are mourning the death of John F. Kennedy. It's that kind of song. It's a public lament. In verse 18 he says it should be taught to the people of Judah. The very people who made Saul king. The people who would be suspicious of David. This should be taught to them. I want you to know how great Saul was is what he's saying. And even to this day, it's written in the book of Jeshar. So basically across the whole land, the flag is at half-mast, an official day of mourning. And it's very strange that um, he is writing about all these great things about Saul. And the sword in verse 22 that he is praising that shall not return empty, that's weird because that's the sword that was going to kill David. So he's praising the very sword that would have cut off David's head if he had been able to. And then in verse 23, he is praising the speed and the power of Saul. Swifter than eagle, stronger than lion. And that was the speed and the power that Saul was using to chase down David. So think about praising your enemies. I'm not in the habit of praising my enemies. I don't know about you, but my go-to is to critique My enemies. And in our staff meetings, Austin has to stop me sometimes from critiquing uh, who I consider to be my enemies. I am more in the habit of undermining them than lifting them up. And I imagine that you also struggle to praise your enemy. Just think back in your head now when was the last time that I actually said something super positive and true? Uh, not in a manipulative way, but really sincere way to try to get someone else to think very highly of someone who is my enemy. That's worth thinking about. And uh, and not just saying a few nice things. I can pull that off every now and then, but this is like a, a serious commitment to meditating on how great this person is and then writing it down and then maybe posting it, publishing it, passing it around the office. This person... Who is always undermining me, I want you to know is actually a great person. And here's why they're great. And I'm just guessing this is applicable to you right now in your life somewhere. There's someone that you could be doing this about where you are lifting up a rival or you're lifting up a competitor. Um, It could be your brother, it's often your brother or sister, especially if you're older and there's a younger one, that's very hard. Or it could be someone at work, it's often a colleague, it could be your boss who takes credit for your ideas, or a, a slimy coworker um, who is gossiping about you all the time. A lot of times in school there's some rival that you have, sometimes it's your friend, but like they sit next to you and they're, they might cheat uh, off your paper, or they're always asking you, what, what, did, what did you make on that test afterwards? And you know they're competitive, but they don't admit they are. Someone on your team that starts in your place. Um, the person that took your place, you know, on the, the, the they, they took your spot on the roster. And you got cut. This is the person that most benefit you to criticize. And uh, instead, you're going around trying to get people to think highly of them. I mean, that's nothing compared to what David is doing. This is the man who tried to kill David. And David credits Saul with all of the prosperity of Israel. Even though David is probably the one that was doing the really heavy lifting and fighting and killing people in order to protect Israel. But look at what he says. Weep over Saul, verse 24, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet. Probably not really. I mean, that probably is an exaggeration of what Saul did. Put ornaments of gold on your apparel. So as much as David is a man of justice, he is even more a man of grace, and there's an interesting interaction between justice and grace. I would say that you cannot understand grace. You can't even begin to understand grace until you know what justice is and what you deserve. And there's this video that went viral about grace and justice, and I've been talking a lot, a lot of people about this video, and uh, it's controversial. I know it's con- so. Um, talk to me afterwards. You know, sometimes email me, text me if uh, if you have further questions. But the video is about a, a white police officer in Dallas named Amber Geiger, and I, I bet you that the majority of you have seen this. But if you haven't seen it, I'm going to try to describe it just for those who haven't seen this. So uh, th- this white police officer, she uh, shot and killed an innocent black man uh, from the islands. His name was Botham Jean. And she thought she was going into her apartment. But either she hit the wrong button on the elevator or she walked up the wrong you know, floor. But all the apartments looked the same. And so there was a, the door was ajar. And she saw the door ajar. And she, she crept in there and saw him. Uh, there was a man sitting in front of a TV and uh, she thought that he had broken into her place so she shot him and she killed him. And he was just sitting there eating ice cream in his own apartment uh, watching his favorite show. And this is a man who was a deeply joyful man. His neighbor said that he loved to sing gospel music. He was a man of deep faith. And, uh, and she was sentenced to 10 years in prison for that. And that's, that's that's hard. Just that sentencing's hard. But then there's another element where it seems like there was a, there was a miscarriage of justice somewhere in there. There was stuff that was not brought forward. Perhaps the police department was protecting her. We don't know all the, the details of that, but um, it was problematic enough so there's been a lot written about it. It was problematic the way it was carried out. Well, the brother of the victim, uh, instead of being outraged by all this injustice. He sits there in the courtroom, and he publicly forgives her. His name is Brandt. And he says, I love you as a person. He's looking right at her. And if you haven't seen it, you've got to watch the way he says this. Uh, There's no putting on airs at all here. It's deadly serious. I love you as a person. I don't wish anything bad on you. Botham would have wanted you to give your life to Christ. I don't want you to serve any time in prison. And then he said, I don't know if this is possible right now, but can I give her a hug, please? And you can see the bailiff's really uncomfortable. The judge didn't really know, doesn't know what to do. This probably never happened before. But he comes up out of, this, out of the witness stand and he walks over to the person who killed his brother, his innocent brother, 27 days earlier. And uh, he gives her a hug. And you can see, like, the, the judge pulls out Kleenex, and everyone the, you can hear the weeping in the courtroom. And um, even the judge is weeping. And, you, and the judge goes, and she goes back to her chambers, and she gets a Bible. And she's been criticized for this, but she gets a Bible, and she brings out the Bible to Amber Geiger. The black woman is the judge. And, uh, and she tells Amber Geiger, like, I'm a sinner, too. And, uh, and I need this, and you need this too for the next 10 years you're in prison. You, can you imagine what kind of effect that had on is having right now on Amber Geiger as she serves those 10 years? I thought about Jean Valjean and Les Mis and how the, the priest forgives him uh, when he steals the priest's candlesticks, and, and the priest tells him, your soul has been bought by God. You are God's now. And I, I imagine that Amber Geiger feels the same way right now, that uh, she has been bought by the blood of Christ, and we, we often think that grace is the opposite of justice. So that the more grace you give, the less just something is, and the more grace, uh, the the more just, the less grace. But the reality is, um, what I'm saying here, and uh, what David I think would say, is there's no way to understand the grace without the justice. You can't you cannot understand the, the depths of Brant Jean's forgiveness. Uh, without understanding um, the amount of injustice that his forgiveness is covering. God couldn't just forgive the human race. There had to be justice done. Um, especially in a miscarriage of justice like this. I mean, Brandt had every reason to be furious with the police, with Amber. Now, what if, um, what if Amber had been actually found guilty? Let's say evidence had come out that she was proven to be racist, the door was actually locked... And she was just annoyed by his singing. And people have said that. She was just annoyed by this guy. Door was locked. Let's just say she knocks, the guy opens up, she shoots him. What if, what if she had been found guilty of first-degree murder and been given the death penalty? And then what if, uh, what if Brandt Jean had gone to the electric chair for her? You know, that's what God, that's what God does for us. Uh, David was not always a man of grace and justice. In fact, later on, we realized he was not at all. Um, but, but Jesus was absolutely that. And at this table, we see the son of David, uh, a man of perfect grace and justice, in his act of greatest glory, um, demonstrating in the world the love of Christ, love of God, total forgiveness. And so uh, no matter what you've done, um, this week or across the whole span of your life forgiveness is here, you're forgiven and you don't have to carry guilt with you and, uh, and And God forgives in a way that is completely just and justice is covered by his forgiveness because of this blood, because of his sacrifice and uh, it's especially important at a time like this to let everyone know that that there is no price, there is If somebody brought up some money to try to pay for this, that would be ridiculous. If you brought up some or like a tip or something like that, that would be absolutely ridiculous. This is free grace. So everyone is welcome. Every single person in here is welcome to this table. Now, on the other hand, if you don't know what you believe about this, and this is kind of this is a lot to take in and you haven't heard this stuff, or you're just not ready for that level of intensity, then feel no pressure whatsoever to partake. We want everyone to have total integrity. And uh, and if it doesn't feel right, then there's absolutely no pressure. But all are welcome.